You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Um, in this week's episode, uh, I want to talk um, a little bit about debt. Uh, Joe Biden, you know, uh, uncharacteristically uh, for the senator from uh, MBNA, uh, uh, helped out at least some debtors, uh, maybe not to the degree one would like, but by giving like, you know, like a little bit of uh, relief um, to people um, uh, holding student debt. Um, and this will, I think, continue to be an issue um, beyond Biden's actions uh, for two reasons. One of which is that the uh, Republicans are going to challenge us in the courts. They are challenging it under the courts. And then it becomes a broader issue of um, democracy. Like, you know, uh, who can set the parameters for these issues? Does the courts have the power to do that? Um, and then also because of the issue, because I don't think uh, the debt issue is going to go away. Like, I think in some ways, uh, we owe Biden a favor because he, you know, by showing, you know, you can just get rid of debt by, you know, signing it away. Uh, and that's actually something that happens to rich people all the time. And why doesn't it happen to ordinary people? Um, it, it really opens up a whole um, world of possibilities uh, for canceling a more student debt, canceling a medical debt. Uh, and so, um, in order to talk about this, um, I wanted to um, uh, speak with um, Astra Taylor, uh, who's a documentary filmmaker, uh, co-founder of the Debt Collective, and has been very actively involved with these issues. And one thing I appreciate about her work is that she sort of grounds the issue of debt, not just in the economics of you know, who owes what to whom, but sort of like larger issues of uh, democracy, of guilt, of um, uh, and of power, social power. Uh, so I'm very happy to have her. Uh, my voice is a little bit raspy, so I, I, I'm, I'm, um, I hope our listeners will forgive that. But let's let's get to uh, Astra, and let's just start with the newsy part of this, um, which is the uh, the courts. What do we think the courts are going to do? Well, certainly the courts are a problem. We knew that there would be legal challenges to Biden's debt cancellation if he did it the wrong way. And sadly, he did do it the wrong way. What do I mean by that? Um, instead of automatically and immediately canceling student debt for the millions of borrowers that he promised relief to, his administration uh, launched an application. <laughs> and what that did was effectively buy their enemies who are also our enemies time, time to come up with bogus legal theories, time to find bogus plaintiffs, uh, and time to find cases that could line up with sympathetic judges, because this really isn't a question of what's legal. 100% student debt cancellation is legal. If the federal government issues a loan, they don't have to collect on it by law. It doesn't say in the constitution, the government must collect every penny of every debt it issues. The, the point is that you know, there, the US judicial system is full of very ideological judges who are there as a result of a longstanding conservative legal strategy. You know, we all know about the Federalist Society, you know, put in very sympathetic 
judges who are sympathetic to right wing wing cases. So right now there are multiple lawsuits trying to block Biden's student debt relief plan. Um, again, <laughs> we shouldn't even be having these this debate because the debt cancellation should be out the door. It should be delivered already. Uh, but the Biden administration is doing it in this very slow, slow way. Um, and these these folks are essentially throwing you know everything they have at the wall. So there's something like six cases now, a, a few that have been thrown out. But then what they do is they just go to another. You know, they go higher up. They appeal. Um, the challenge for the Republican opponents of debt cancellation is finding a, a plaintiff with standing, right? So who actually has been harmed by student debt cancellation? They're, they are having a hard time doing that. Um, you know, it's hard to prove that canceling debt for some people is really hurting anybody else. Uh, the, the most uh, robust case is saying that it's harming different states because certain student loan servicers which have an investment in collecting debts are kind of quasi-state entities. That's one, one approach. And the other approaches are, you know, just random individuals, many of whom work at conservative law firms <laughs> saying, you know, basically I, I don't like this for X, Y, and Z reasons. Um, they're very weak arguments, but at least in two cases, one brought about by the Cato Institute, which is the libertarian think tank, they've just lined them up just perfectly with judges who are notorious uh, for agreeing with the most out there right-wing legal theories. So, you know, I, we're not having a totally rational discussion as is always the case with politics, right? We're having a discussion about just who's, who's rigged the board game. Um, and, and, you know, the problem is that it's not a game. People's lives are on the line. People need this debt relief. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really frustrated that I'm ultimately frustrated, not just with these Republicans and with these loan servicers who are putting profits above everything else, but with the Biden administration for opening space for this to happen when we all knew that this was going to be, this was going to be, uh, this is going to be the outcome of buying these people anytime. Yeah, well, one reason I wanted to bring up the courts is because I, I think it gets at this issue of debt is not never just about debt. Like it is about sort of social power. And I think the intervention of the courts in this case um, really shows that and it brings up like larger issues of democracy, like who gets to decide is it elected officials or is it judges? Um, especially since I think like the, you know, uh, the Democrats, if they wanted to, could limit the power of the courts. And so, you know, it's like I think um, one reason, uh, and so I want you to speak a little bit more about that, about the way in which debt is tied to issues of democracy. Yep. Debt for millennia has been a tool of social domination and not just profit, not just profit extraction. I mean, debt is uh, very, very old. We, we learned this from all sorts of writers, but you know, I'll cite my, my friend, the late and great anarchist anthropologist, David Graeber, who wrote the book Debt, The First 5,000 Years. You know, we know that there were plenty of debtors revolts in the ancient world that were precisely tied to the, the origins of what we call democracy. I mean, I always use the word democracy in the context of ancient Athens or Rome with a grain of salt, but nevertheless, you know, it was a debtor's revolt um, millennia ago in ancient Greece that led to some of the first proto-democratic reforms. And, and that's because, you know, as you said, debt's never just about money. It's always about power. Um, when you flash forward to the founding of the United States, the racial component of debt 
really comes to the fore. The fact that debt is was was wielded intentionally as a tool of racial domination. So there's incredible scholarship about the way mortgages were used to dispossess indigenous people of their lands. You drive you drive people into debt and they can't pay them off. And so what they, what do they do? They have to forfeit their property. You know they're they're um, uh, and thus their their livelihoods, their autonomy. <laughs> uh, you see the role of debt after the Civil War as a way of maintaining racial domination through sharecropping and tenant farming arrangements. You see the history of redlining and predatory lending. These, these structures all live on to this day. So questions of debt and democracy are just so deeply woven. I mean, debates about debt cancellation were really heated during the founding of the United States. I mean, all of the founding fathers were very worried that an increase in what they called the democracy, that's how they, they spoke of it, a, a more re representative political system at the federal level, they worried that it would replicate what was happening at the state level at the time, which were, were you know, these sort of economic populists, these radicals passing laws that helped, you know, farmers out of their debts. I mean, they were worried about what they called the wicked project of debt abolition. That's a phrase from James Madison. So debt and democracy, yeah, are, are deeply connected. And, you know, on a really basic level, I guess I would say that democracy is related to freedom, right? We have to be sort of free and equality. We have to be free and equal citizens who can deliberate and decide together. But but debt impinges uh, our freedom, right? When you are deeply in debt, you you know you have to toil to to pay off those debts. It drives you into certain careers, uh, forces you to make certain sacrifices and life choices, and and it also undermines that equality that's so essential to democracy because. You know, debt payments again are a form of profit. So our monthly debt payments are enriching the investors, the asset holders on the other side of those debts. So debt undermines both e equality and freedom. And this is what's uh, to tie it back to these Republican lawsuits. There's what's what's fascinating about this moment is again, as angry as I am about it, is that they're saying the quiet part out loud, literally in the court documents. These um, uh, Republican public officials <laughs> uh, and these, you know, conservative legal theorists are saying, we can't have debt cancellation. How are we going to recruit for the military or how are we going to recruit into our law firms? Because we depend on, uh, you know, the incentive, for example, of a free college education if you join the army or public service loan forgiveness if you work at a quote unquote nonprofit, you know, conservative law firm. And so they're just saying it. They're saying, you know, uh, and they're saying, we need these profits. We need these profits as a loan servicer. In other words, we need to extract money from poor debtors. So it's all being laid bare, you know, all of these connections in these cases. Um, I just wish the stakes weren't so high for people's lives. Yeah, no, that's that's a really great point. I mean, they were, and there's also like a congressman who just tweeted out, you know, like that, you know, the, the uh, uh, debt forgiveness is bad because, you know, where are we going to, uh, the military is already having problems recruiting. And I think in some ways this is like, you know, actually goes back to the origins of the current debt system in the sort of like uh, late 60s, early 70s, where sort of theorists like Milton Friedman were basically, you know, this was their response to the 60s and to the, you know, upheaval of what happens when you have a democratic society where a large number of people now have access to education. Um, the, the, uh, the appeal, in some ways, um, um, uh, the move towards 
um, student debt as a way to finance education came at the same time as the volunteer army. And they had the same impulse. Like, you, you know, you have to create structures to discipline people. Uh, and uh, so, so yeah, no, I, I think it's really important and crucial for people to like kind of um, understand that. Uh, the, the other aspect in your work, um, and, and uh, you know, like I'm glad you, you know, referenced um, uh, 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 de the uh, debt uh, uh, 5,000 years of history uh, book because it's not just you, it's, it's a whole like, you know, sort of social movement and an intellectual project that's uh, arising is like, you know, to think about debt more broadly and there's the issue of democracy and there's also the issue of like sort of personal self-worth or issues of like empowerment, like, like in a ways in which like being in debt deprives people of, you know, a sense of worth and it sort of makes them almost in complicit in their own um, uh, suffering. Uh, do you want to talk about, a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, e economics always has an emotional component, right? I mean, that's part of Karl Marx's brilliance wasn't just that he made some equations about capital and M and C and M or something like that, but that he, he spoke about alienation, right? The way that, that, you know, these certain modes of production have a psychological effect and debt absolutely has a profound psychological effect. You know, debt is a teacher of sorts. It teaches us uh, how to behave in a, in a highly financialized society. You know, it, for example, you know, you're absolutely right to highlight the role of student debt as a disciplinary tactic. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is very explicit. According to many powerful political figures and economists in the late 60s and 70s, there was an, an excess of democracy, right? And it really, one of the epicenters was the higher education system where these bratty kids were, you know, on the, on the public dime, spending four years learning about stuff and protesting and demanding civil rights and free speech and went into the war in Vietnam and racial justice. And like, how could they do that? And, and so one of, you know, the quotes I like to come back to is from Ronald Reagan, who was then the governor of California, who said, you know, well, let's charge them tuition. Let's make them, if they're, if they're paying tuition, they'll think twice about paying to carry a protest sign. You know, he also said the state should not be in the business of subsidizing curiosity because they understood that curiosity is political. It's democratic. They wanted to suppress that. One of the ways they suppressed that by, by eroding state funding for education and pushing debt, right? So you would individually debt finance your education instead of it being something that you're entitled to as a citizen. And again, that, taught people a lesson. It taught them that, oh, damn, I now I'm going to graduate owing. I mean, at the beginning, it was maybe 5,000 bucks. Now we're up to over 30,000 is the average. You know, I need to seek a career that will pay me enough so I can pay off this debt. I need to, to get a return on investment on my education. So no longer is it a, a space to explore your curiosity and to challenge the status quo. And, oh, I don't have to work as hard for a few years. I'm just learning. So I'll protest a bit. You know, then it, it becomes career training, something you have to work off. And it, it disciplines you as a, as a subject. Um, you know, there's some famous uh, commentary from Alan Greenspan uh, saying, you know, a nation of mortgage holders is gonna be less likely to strike, right? Like, when, because they don't have the security of housing, they have a mortgage, a 30 year debt, <laughs> and they're gonna wanna keep their job so they can pay that and not lose their assets and lose the wealth they've worked so hard to build. So, you know, there's, there's absolutely a, a, that component to it. And then there's the other layer. Um, and this is, you know, 
the sort of dark side of the American dream, which is just shame, shame of the poor, shame of, of the indebted, you know, the shame of, sorry, of the shame of being poor, the shame of being indebted, this myth that, you know, it's your fault that you can't make ends meet. You failed to pull yourself up by your bootstrap. So the debt collectives view on this is like, no way, <laughs> no way. That is, that's BS. Of course you're in debt in a society where the federal minimum wage is stuck at 725 an hour, right? You're in debt by design. You can't make ends meet. And so you have to borrow to, to fill the gap. So in a way you're robbed twice, first by your bosses who underpay you, and then by the lenders who profit through interest and fees. And so you know, you're, you have student loans because there's not free public education because that was eroded after the 60s. You have medical debt because there's not universal health care like there is in Canada. You know, no, medical debt is not a national crisis in the same way in most industrial de rich democracies. Uh, you are take, you're putting necessities on your credit card because you're underpaid. You're, you know, you owe back rent debt because housing is, a, is an asset and not just uh, a social right in this country. And so to, to politicize that and to, to cast away that, that shroud of shame and turn that into... Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to radiobeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's radio b e e t s.com code DEAL. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply solidarity, right? And say, actually, you know, our debts are not our fault. We do not live beyond our means. We're denied the means to live. And if we band together, we can start fighting for those real solutions, you know, and get, get our debts canceled and get us on the path to a society where we're all entitled to live a decent life and where nobody is, you know, blackmailed into joining the military just because they want to go to school. I mean, I'm sorry, but that is sick. <laughs> No, 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 that's right. Uh, and this might be, um, I'm never sure if this is like an, an actual etymology, but it's very suggestive. I've seen some people suggest that the word guilt comes from the word guild, meaning gold, and that guilt uh, uh, is uh, uh, being indebted. Uh, and so this is kind of suggestive link um, uh, between, um, uh, and certainly historically, um, to be, uh, um, uh, indebtedness is seen as like a moral failing, not just a, 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 a legal status or a, a financial status. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I haven't heard that exactly, but you know, David Graeber was very fond of pointing out that the German word 
Shold means both debt and sin. And yeah. that that is something that happens throughout various languages as well. And, you know, so there's a, conf- I mean, everything in, you know, what's, what's fun about philosophy and politics is that everything's contested, right? So you can find this rich tradition going back to, to like Vedic poems saying, you know, debt is debt and sin are connected. Obviously that's something very, very strong in, in our culture today. But then you can also find lots of things that are sort of the reverse. We're actually driving people into debt is the sin, That's right? And, and, yeah. and charging interest is a crime uh, because what you're doing is you're stealing time. I mean, it, this is in sort of, um, uh, you know, some religious traditions, but by charging interest, you're stealing time, which yes. ultimately belongs to God. And so there's, there's sort of both, uh, both things are uh, alive and, you know, what it, you know, so this is, we are part of that ongoing, you know, philosophical debate. We're not theological, but okay, who's really guilty here, right? The predatory lenders or the struggling debtors, um, who really should be asking for forgiveness, right? We reject the idea that debtors need forgiveness. You don't need to be forgiven for pursuing an education or getting sick and having to go to the hospital. We are talking about justice, you know, and it's the, the, the financial predators you know, who are profiting from people's pain and desperation and driving people into that, who should probably get on, get on their knees and say, Hey, <laughs> you know, absolve me, uh, because I've done wrong. And so, you know, we're, we are in this, you know, longstanding moral debate, um, uh, you know, that is ultimately though, it's, it's not just a moral debate because it is about power and it's about power over people's lives. <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 that's right. And um, I wanted to get to this issue of power because um, I mean, I think if we, if we look at this <clears throat> as a broader story, um, you know, there was this, you know, uh, movement from people, elites in power in the 60s and 70s uh, to sort of tampen down on dissent and, you know, uh, social experimentation by uh, uh, making uh, education and many other aspects of life, you know, of uh, 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 privately financed. So I think you have to get into debt too. Um, and this was, I think, largely a successful project for many years to get people um, uh, to uh, focus on their careers uh, rather than sort of politics. And then what you ha- happened was um, the uh, financial crisis of 2008. Um, and then you found a whole group of people who had been doing what the system told them to do. They had been like getting an education. They had like, uh, you know, uh, worked hard to get good grades, get an education, uh, go into debt to get that education with the promise that you'll get a job that will pay it off. And suddenly those jobs weren't there. And so suddenly the very project to, you know, tampen down on people's dissent created a whole cord of people that were like very justifiably mad because um, uh, reality had turned out, it was very clear, visibly clear that they had been lied to. Um, and then so, and that's the sort of basis for a lot of the opposition that came out of say Occupy Wall Street. And I, I think um, it'd be good for you to maybe like speak to a little bit of the, the history of this, how people came together and how the sort of thinking evolved on this issue uh, at that moment of crisis. Yeah, I wanna go back to what you, you you mentioned, you said something in passing that I really liked, which was that I'm part of this collective thinking, right? So there's, there's you know, people who have written books like David Graeber or myself, but then, you know, we are, we're thinking in tandem with, with a movement, right? And with, a, um, you know, a kind of, and, and so a kind of collective epiphany struck at Occupy Wall Street. And I've never 
been part of anything like that since. I mean, it was really amazing where, you know, right, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, which had debt at its, at its center, right? Because the whole point was these bankers were pushing subprime mortgages on people and then chopping them up and bundling and labeling them as, you know, AAA assets <laughs> and selling them up the food chain, you know, I mean, so the debt was there because these were, these were people's mortgage debts. Um, and so we we came to Occupy Wall Street, we're protesting that and saying, okay, the, the banks got bailed out, we got sold out, but what, but what did it mean to be sold out? It meant we were all in debt that, you know, jobs had evaporated uh, so people couldn't pay their bills. You know, people exactly, as you just said, they had honored their share of the bargain, right? The social contract was supposed to be going to a bit of student debt. You'll get a job. Okay. There's, well, there's no jobs. And also, you know, at a certain point, it's like the way we have to face the fact that the way these debts are structured, they're not structured to be paid off. They are structured as debt traps. I mean, the majority of the members of the debt collective that I work with have paid, you know, quote unquote, paid off their principal, <laughs> like, many times over. I mean, I just heard from a woman yesterday, she originally borrowed 24,000 and she owes something like $110,000 somehow. I mean, what something is, you know, these debts are structured in such a way that they're absolutely um, odious and, you know, unfair and they, they, you know, people cannot escape them. Um, and so, you know, what was so great about Occupy is instead of being sort of a one-off you know, protests where we marched around, people held this space and we talked and we talked and we talked and we started talking about our debts and we started saying, hey, wow, you know, the banks can get bailed out. Why can't our debts be canceled? What would it take to change the political and social and economic conditions so that our debts were canceled? Well, you know, maybe we could learn from these labor unions, <laughs> right? Because workers are vulnerable one by one. They get picked off. They get punished. You know, they... Um, are intimidated and exploited, but when they band together in a union, they can exercise collective power. Wow, debtors should do the same. And so, I mean, when a friend, and it was not my idea, it was the um, my colleague, Thomas Gokey, who I still organize with, but when he said the phrase debtors union, I saw a cartoon light bulb. I mean, it was like one of these moments and I was like, that's a great idea. So many of us are in debt. And because of the way labor law is structured in the United States, I mean, we'll never be able to join a labor union. Like I wish, I wish, you know, union density was at 80%, but it's not. <laughs> and, but hey, we could have economic solidarity in another way. And organizing around debt, I mean, it was immediately obvious to me that it was a challenge because debtors don't share a workplace, but that there were also advantages because our debts stick to us, what, regardless of what job we're in, whether we move. So debt can connect people across a lot of, uh, divisions, you know, racial divisions, black and white people have debt, old and young people have debt, rural people and urban people have debt. And of course, debt is structured in such a way that it disproportionately impacts people. I mean, again, it's highly racialized. So I don't want to just say, oh, it affects everybody equally, because that's not the case. But there's some, a really powerful basis there for solidarity, for people to come together with folks they wouldn't otherwise meet. And, you know, and so, yeah, the rest is history. I mean, once I mean, I will say when I saw that little cartoon light bulb, I was like, someone else should do that. That would be great. <laughs> I'm, I'm a filmmaker. I'm a writer. I'm going to go and live my life. And then I realized, you know what? You know, actually, I've got to help do this. I've got to help make this thing real. You know, I, I, it's, it's not someone else's job. It's actually, you know, 
like be the change you want to see. And so we started organizing. We started trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we get our hands around this issue? Finance is really complicated. So there's a real nerdy side. You have to understand consumer protections and you have to do a lot of research. A lot of the stuff is, you know, just as we are sort of as, as individuals shrouded in the shame that keeps us from talking. So we're in the dark. Well, there's a lot of, um, you know, obscurantism <laughs> on the side of financial elites who try to make it seem like, oh, this stuff is too complicated to understand, or, you know, information is just hard to get. So we had to do a lot of research and try to find access to the information we needed. We started doing research about what was actually legally possible in terms of debt cancellation. And to make a long story short, we realized the federal government can indeed cancel stu federal student loans. So we started focusing on that and working with students from a predatory for-profit college. We organized the country's first debt strike. And we kind of were a, a, an interesting hybrid activist organization that on the one hand was organizing campaigns of militant economic disobedience. We can't pay, we won't pay, we're going on strike. We all of this debt should be canceled. We're not asking for forgiveness. We're demanding full cancellation. And then a kind of policy shop that was like, and by the way, public officials, this is how you do it. We've written your little legal brief for you. We've spelled it all out. You know, like, sorry, you can't hide behind technocracy because we've, we've got your number and this is it. This is how you do it. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's a great story. And I'm really glad you like laid it out like that, because I think that there have been some voices on the left. Uh, I won't name names, but they've kind of like poo-poo this whole thing and said, well, this is just like, you know, Biden uh, making a, a noblesse oblige gesture and whatnot. But I mean, I think it's very important for people to understand that this is actually a grassroots movement, um, uh, which is very successful in terms of uh, making this issue a priority, getting it in people's uh, uh, in front of uh, politicians, and also laying out a path forward. Um, and uh, perhaps as a note to end on, uh, you know, like what are the prospects for applying this model uh, to other things? As you said, debt is something that uh, can create solidarity and can uh, bring people together to organize politically. What are other forms of debt? that you know now need to be addressed. Yeah. Well I just I want to say that you know part of part of organizing su successfully is making things appear as common sense, right? I mean this was what Gramsci said, right? You need to build a new consensus, shift the hegemony or you know the you know and what what seems normal and you know I can say that you know 10 years ago when we first raised the issue of full student debt cancellation, I mean a lot of the same journalists and these, I'm not talking about people on the left so much as like mainstream folks were like, oh, can you believe these silly occupiers are saying the government should cancel a dime of student debt? It will never happen, you know? And within four years, we had started to push the Obama administration to cancel debt. And that started to add up into the hundreds of millions, you know? And then, uh, you know, our original demand with the Corinthian student debt strike was the full automatic discharge for all of the former students of Corinthian colleges. So we're talking over 600,000 people, over $6 billion worth of debt. And just this summer, the Biden administration finally did it. They finally, you know, gave into our demands and we won 100% full cancellation for all those folks. In addition to the broader student debt relief that was later announced. Um, but what changed in those years was that, yeah, debt cancellation became part of the conversation, right? <laughs> and people started to think it was a normal idea. It didn't sound so wild. Um, uh, but nothing is ever handed down from on high. And, and so for me, I, I wish the message people were taking away was like, wow, this little scrappy movement that came out of Occupy pushed 
President Biden, who has long served creditor interests, I mean, you were right to say he was the former senator of MBNA, right? He, Delaware is the credit card headquarter capital of the world in the United States. He actually played a significant role in creating the student debt crisis. He, he was forced to change teams briefly, <laughs> um, hopefully permanently, but we'll, we'll, only if we keep building power. And so, I, you know, for me, the takeaway, you know, it's not, oh, of course he did that. He had to do something, but rather look what organized people can do. Let's push to do more. And so that brings me to, you, to the real question you asked, which is, well, what's the more? One, there's more student debt to be canceled and we need to change the political economy of higher education. We need free college. That's how you get at the root of the student debt crisis. We are also organizing around housing debt, specifically in Cal uh, California, we are um, uh, working um, in collaboration with tenants unions to challenge corporate landlords through something called the Tenant Power Toolkit. We are also working to challenge bail debt uh, and we are working on um, abolishing medical debt. Uh, and we are uh, looking similarly at, you know, all of the administrative tools the government actually has to cancel, <laughs> to cancel medical debt, all the power that it possesses that it's not using. And our position is that we're not gonna, the government's not gonna use those tools actually out of the goodness of its heart, out of some charitable but beneficent beneficence from on high, but only if uh, regular people start organizing. And we think that debtors, medical debtors specifically in that fight have a big role to play. So I think there's a lot that can be done in this space. I mean, that barely uh, scratches the, the surface of the, uh, the ideas and campaigns we have going on. Um, but the point is, you know, this basic insight that our debts are somebody else's assets and that they are a source of, of uh, profit and revenue for the people who hold those debts, but that they can also be a source of power for us as debtors if we get organized, I think holds in, in a range of cases. And so I, the Debt Collective you know, is really energized at this moment. Um, the last thing I'll say is concretely, you know, the Biden administration is threatening to turn on payments to end its uh, uh, COVID moratorium on December 31st. And we're determined to not have that happen, specifically because of these legal challenges to cancellation. Our concern is that people are not gonna get the cancellation they were promised and are legally entitled to before payments get turned on, which creates a really perverse situation where what people are gonna start paying back debts that are gonna be canceled in full. <laughs> so we think we need to, there's an urgent fight to get the payment pause extended. Um, and in fact, we have a growing debt strike uh, and, and a growing caucus of actually older debtors, debtors who are over the age of 50 that I invite people to join. So we have some really immediate uh, immediate campaigns ahead that we um, are recruiting for and then longer term term gains. This The horizon of a society where we are not forced into debt to meet our basic needs. Okay, I, that's a really great note to end on. There's uh, obviously a lot more battles than fight. Yeah. <laughs> I wanna thank uh, my guest, uh, uh, Astra Taylor, once again, uh, it's a great conversation, and uh, I also want to thank her for her work, which is, I think, a really um, a great example of uh, what activism can do in this society. Uh, so th th thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.